This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Gary, welcome to the CMO Podcast. I will be forever grateful to you, my friend. This podcast would not be here, would not be thriving without you. So I want you to think about, you called me out of the blue on my <laughs> mobile phone a couple of years ago and basically said, we've got to do this. You've got to do it. We're going to help you do it. The world needs it. CMOs need it. So tell us about that. Because honestly, I was reluctant. I didn't say yes the first time. Yep. You were relentless, <laughs> which is a good characteristic, which we'll talk about later. But tell us about that. What was the insight? Why did you do it? Why did you believe in it? How did you know that was, this would turn out as incredible as it has? Um, strategic relentlessness is a good one, right? Because I think relentlessness, when you're not 100% positive, can, can land with annoyance. Relentlessness without empathy for the other person can come across tone deaf. It was very clear to me you know, one of the funny things about me is I do so much talking because I put out so much content. Um, and because even when I'm talking, I get so excited if in a setting or I just love communicating relationships, all that stuff. But really the foundation of my career has been listening and watching. And, you know, I, uh, I knew that Gallery Media Group, um, my publishing arm that sits within VaynerX, wanted to take a strategy with podcasts that was more HBO than it was CBS, right? We, we knew we wanted to have seven, 12, 15, 25 quality podcasts instead of doing iHeart, which is an incredible model of scale. We wanted to go the other way and both work. And so that was our strategy. And I really think B2B podcasts are underrated. You know, you know, you look at all the B2B magazines, there's an appetite for all of us. You know, I'm so excited right now because I know how many incredible people are listening on the other side that have a lot of context to the things that you and I know, and it's our day-to-day -day inside jokes or mm -hmm. knowledge. So I just knew that there was an opportunity for the show. And I've been watching you, you know, lead CMOs at Cannes and other places and just kind of watched you, knew the admiration people had for you, knew that you were incredibly revered and liked felt that you were a very strong communicator when leading those groups in real life and between the strategy, the opportunity, knowing that podcasts were here to stay, that it wasn't a fad five, six, seven years ago when some people were debating where it was going to be, where would podcasts be post-COVID? Same place they were pre-COVID mm -hmm. yeah. in a great place, you know? And so just had a really strong inclining that it was going to work. Um, and it has absolutely been that. Any surprises for you on this show? You know, it's funny. I, I would say that I, the biggest one that could be a surprise for a lot of people from the outside was probably the thing I had the most conviction on, which was I knew that you were so respected and liked that the depth of the conversations would go far beyond CPMs, GRPs, um, you know, headlines. And so um, it's, I wouldn't say surprise, no. I would say there's been affirmation to an intuition I had that would, I knew was gonna surprise others, which was the humanity was gonna shine through on this show. Yeah, well, the people we've had are just incredible. And my job is just to let them tell their story, right? And listen. And, and the best part is I have such a relationship on LinkedIn. And by the way, if you're listening as one of these people, please hit me up, I love it. With so many young brand managers 
And the inspiration that this has been, the guidance, the verbal blueprint to maybe how to get there, the the mentorship through the podcast has been enormous for the young marketers of the Fortune 500 land. Um, And that feels like a great legacy dropper. Gary, we could talk about a million things today and we have a few minutes. I want to talk about your new book because it seems to underlie everything you are doing in your life now. The book is called 12 and a half, leveraging the emotional ingredients necessary for business success. And I want to start with why this book, you've written a bunch of them and why now? Probably the thing that I've been most proud of in the last five years professionally has been that I've amassed a lot more attention as a public figure. A lot of it has been on the youth side because I was very strategic on content in Instagram and then specifically TikTok. Even when it was musically, I was putting out content there. That ended up being right. I mean, we should probably spend a few minutes on how brand is being built on TikTok right now. And I know a lot of the senior leaders here could use an understanding to how real that is. For every senior CMO or senior marketer, what you didn't, what you kind of maybe let go by you in 2012 to 15 on Facebook, all that opportunity for brand building or, or 15 to 17 on Instagram is happening even greater on TikTok because of the way the interest graph works on the algorithm and has more television DNA in it than those Mm -hmm. platforms did. It's profound, but that's another story for another day and maybe we'll get to it. But because because of me living my own thesis, I've picked up a ton of popularity in the under 25 sector. And I've really enjoyed being cool to that demo and then using that coolness to push virtues like kindness and patience and empathy as alpha business traits which I think has made a real impact. And I wanted to scale that. I wrote 12 and a half because I want to have a conversation around soft skills being actually the hard skills. I know that everyone was gonna be thinking about the great resignation. I think people are not prepared for the great never applying in the first place. And uh, I think that there's a lot of leaders listening to this podcast right now that can really benefit from asking themselves, where are they as a leader when it comes to eliminating fear? Do they actually have compassion? Are they blindly driven by the PNL and the bonuses that come along with it? Or do they, do they really understand that the payoff at, with soft skills will really play out long-term? I think of uh, Chris Hyatt, big executive at Olay, mm-hmm. who's on Olay for a long time, he's at Proctor. I just haven't seen a lot of people deploy that level of humanity to their team. And I see it, I see it in the business results. And so I think about patience and kindness and empathy. You know, a lot of people listening to this who don't know me, they see the high energy, they see the cursing, they, that, what's very obvious is the New Jersey-ness. What's very obvious is the competitive spirit, the ambition, the tenacity. Those are obvious because it's my style of communication. What a lot of people miss is the words that are coming out. Patience, kindness, yeah. value, non-transactional, community building, you know, belief, standing other people up, karma, 5149, give them more than you take. It's not about you. Leave a legacy. Legacy is greater than currency. You know, I and I think in the last couple of years, I think I've been making so much um, traction and awareness that it is starting to be more obvious. Plus, a lot of things within our little world of advertising a lot of my hypotheses 
creatively and media are playing out and it doesn't seem like left field or like a joker's, you know, it's not a, there's a real understanding that the world is changing from brand building. And so I think all those things combined gave me the audacity and ambition to sit down. I had COVID as an anchor. I got to really go into my feelings. And I, and I also went vulnerable. Gary V, mm-hmm. the one that takes the stage at the ANA and can, he's great at candor. Gary Vaynerchuk, the one who falls in love with every employee that works for him, he sucked at candor. He, in his 20s, he was atrocious. In his 30s, he closed the gap. But in my mid 40s, I'm starting to finally get there. And so that's why I, I talk about candor being a, a weakness of mine. It's why I made it my half in the book because these are 13 mm-hmm. virtues yep. that I think matter. And, um, and it was a good process for myself as a leader. And I hope the book helps others um, see the opportunity. Gary, how did you, uh, when did the self-awareness hit you that kind candor, as you call it, was not a strength? And how did you, how did you adjust? How did you tackle in, that? In my late 30s, maybe five, six years ago, I just had a really interesting conversation with myself, which was, you know, nobody knows yourself better than yourself, right? And I'm literally having this combo with myself. I remember, and it was like a six week combo. And I remember one of those six weeks, I was on a plane, just washing my hands in, in a plain bathroom with the bad lighting and the no room. And I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I said, you know, you, you really don't care about the money. You really do love people. Boy, what a gift, right? Um, you really are born lucky, talented, that you're a good entrepreneur and you know how to make ends meet. Why in the world would anybody that's ever worked for you not be happy with you? This was the combo I'm having. That's a good and question for anyone, by the way, Gary. I think so. And I and it was triggered because there's some Facebook groups with former employees in it. There were some posts. And there was enough not thrilled with me and 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 plenty defense, and you know, both sides. And it was just very obvious. I'm looking at the names, and so many of them were people that non-ceremoniously were exited from the business because I was unable to give them candor to give them a chance to build up. So instead they were either caught off guard and fired or they were pushed out cleverly and like, you know, and not even just like messy, like just like messy. And I realized that my father was incredibly candorous, but he was so not kind when he would deliver the candor that I demonized the candor, not the vessel that was delivering the candor. And my mother, who is my greatest hero, I literally genuinely in my soul, and not even like normal people love their mother, like just know that my mom is an all time special human being in her balance. You know, she built me in such balance, like incredible self-esteem building, but no entitlement. That's impossibly hard Mm -hmm. as a parent. So she nailed, I am the entrepreneurial version of my mother as a mother. So I look up to her so much. I admire her so much that, and she, she struggles with candor. And she also would use the gift of warmth and gab and strategy to not deliver that you stink at something, but get it done. And so I just, um, I just didn't like the feeling. I, I said to myself, you know, I'm going to do this for another 40, 50 years. And I want to make sure that everybody, it's one thing for somebody who's listening right now and believes in television. And they saw me at the ANAs drop seven F-bombs and say, TV sucks. That makes sense to me that they're like, 
I don't like Gary Vee, forget that guy. That's like ph philosophical strategic views that are different and maybe my delivery was crass or off-putting based on how they grew up. But somebody that knows me, you know, that person always needs to admire me. That's how I feel. And I love, and I'm proud, and you know this because you run a lot of circles similar. You have plenty of people that I, I know and plenty of people that I don't know. I have a really nice situation going, whereas if the person knows me better, there's a really nice and sweet taste. And if the person doesn't, it can go either way, depending on how they view the world. And so I just wanted to make sure that anybody that I've ever interacted with, especially if they work for me, appreciated me, liked me, and were appreciative of what I brought to the table. Because I know that Vayner is building the future of marketing and thus everybody's gonna have a lot of opportunity by having time spent in the business because they're gonna be recruited and they're gonna get hired in the coming decades. And I just wanted to address that. I just thought it was time. I was mature enough. The gray hairs were coming in. I thought I was ready to be accountable to something that's always been in the pit of my stomach. Um, I used to have to have my dad fire people when I was 22, 23, 24. Mm -hmm. then, I, then I was like, okay, now I've got to grow up and do it myself. But it was always, always, always clunky. And I've always lost a lot of money and I've lost reputation with those individuals. And there's just no reason for it. And once I marketed to myself and put the word kind in front of it, instead of just candor, or another adjective, once I put the word kind in front of it, it really took off for me. I started to go there. You know, it was really challenging deploying it during COVID given the circumstances, but I saw the benefits of it. And it's, you know, I'm in a different place. Now, I, I feel I know you reasonably well, but I read the book and I felt like I knew you a lot better. And I felt like uh, I had great insight into how you viewed life and business. So it's a great book, Gary. I Thank love you. how it's structured. You go through the 12 and a half ingredients in a very personal way. Yes. And then you go through real life scenarios of using those ingredients in situations. That are and challenging, you, right? Yeah, like, yeah, like for sure. Your best friends with your coworker, you both started at an agency or a law firm or Google. You both are great. And she gets the promotion and you don't. What yep. do you do? Yep. You know, those, those are real life scenarios. This is back to listening. I've, you know, I've watched Vayner grow from zero to, you know, 1800 employees globally. And it's really fun to watch these kids go through it. And not just the kids, executives who spent 20 years at a holding co come here and really struggle conforming to a culture that actually has humanity at its core. And, you know, you get to see all the politics and all the moves and all the tricks of the trade. And, you know, it's, it's the scenarios came very natural to me because I get so many emails, you know, I really loved the professional woman who decided to raise her kids and then started a, cupcake company because of her grandma. And then, you know, there's, these yeah. are just things that I've read over and over from people that have emailed me. You, you end the book with exercises for uh, the readers. And I, th I think they're terrific. And I'm going to do one right now with you. One of the, one of the ingredients is conviction. Yes. And your exercise is write down one strong belief you have, a you have doubled down on over the, over time and one that you have wavered from. So I'd like to ask you, Gary, What's one strong belief you've doubled down on? Maybe it's kind candor. And what's one that you feel like you've wavered from? I love that. Um, let me make this really topical to the audience that I know is listening, because I do love context. One thing I believe in is within the context of the combo or the audience that's listening. I have tripled down on Vayner's work. I believe that relevance 
is the actual gateway to business growth in today's marketing society and that the industry has gone too far and too tone deaf on reach. Mm -hmm. And that reach is actually built on potential reach, not actualized consumption. And that impressions and GRPs, the way they're scored in our industry are destroying brands. And that relevance, aka brands are built in social, but find, but market to 15 or 20 consumer segmentations and make it relevant to them, which as you know, Jim, and this was your career, that scares marketers because is it on brand? Is that schizophrenia? Is mm -hmm. that throw yeah. against the wall and see what sticks? No, that is, if you wanna sell your product to somebody that's buying it in Walmart in Kansas, there's a likelihood a 45 year old woman in Kansas for that matter, that's gonna probably play different for that brand than if they wanna to sell to a 21 year old, you know, uh, individual in Boston going to school, uh, different income levels, interests. So um, I've tripled down on my conviction that brand is built in social, that we have to produce creative, that gets insights from consumers in actual social, not in boardrooms. And it's been incredibly enjoyable because I've really moved the organization forward the last four months aggressively. Um, one that I've wavered on in the macro is around why I was bad at kind candor. I had to realize, my number one belief is that a leader's job is to eliminate fear, not weaponize it. So I was incredibly proud that I would take on all the pressure, that I was the biggest driver of revenue, that I knew how to manage a PL, that I took on all clients for my employee. Like I did so many things right. And then when I had the observation that because I wasn't candorous, employees were walking around scared because they didn't know where they sat with me and that I could be the person that could fire them. That was the hardest day of my professional career. Actually, the single hardest. More than 9-11 when we lost most mm -hmm. of our clients for Wine Library, more than the economic, more than COVID. I was like, my God, the thing that I'm most proud of, I have a, I have a vulnerability, I have a hole in it. Um, but here's what I needed to let go of. I had, and I, you know, I have confidence and I have conviction, but ego is insecurity in makeup. So I don't have a whole lot of that thanks to my mom tomorrow. Um, but I did have ego in a very funny way. It's a parenting way. I believed that my DNF level employees, C minus level employees were better off working for me because I didn't care about the money and I was gonna keep them safe than going out into the world and working somewhere else where they were gonna be exposed. What I didn't understand in my 20s and 30s was I was building subconscious resentment and creating an unhealthy relationship that ultimately I wouldn't compromise the business and would ultimately after holding my breath for a while have an unceremoniously ugly exit for them, right? So I had to give up this idea that if somebody isn't great at something in my world, the wine store, VaynerMedia, V Friends, that they're still better off because of who I am and that there are better places for them that will fit their skill sets um, than my two hands. And so I had to give up on the idea that my humanity and talents would be able to get them through or it through or the relationship through. And so I had to give up on this delirious belief grounded in ego, in my opinion, on they're better off with me than, with, than somewhere else. It's just not true. And so that was a big one that I had to give up. And that was what started the process of me being better at kind candor. 
Last question on the book. It's selling very well. No surprise. Is there anything that has surprised you from people's reaction to the book? No, I, I think, you know, again, what's really weird about when I sell or do things, it's funny. You've asked me two questions on, am I surprised? And both answers have been no. And I, <laughs> I can hear myself talking and I understand the person on the other side. I don't tend to get surprised post a decision I make. Because what's really funny about me is I may seem frantic and all over the place. I would argue that there are very few people I know that cut 53 times, excuse me, that measure 53 times before they cut once. You know, they say measure twice, cut once. I am so acutely aware that I put myself so out there as part of my framework of doing business that I really don't have a whole lot of breathing room to be wrong. You know, of course mm -hmm. I'll be wrong. And I'm wrong in the micro a ton, but in yeah. the macro, a book, yeah. a yeah. podcast, like, like in, the, in the macro sense, I'm so sure of commercial success by the, before it comes out that it only becomes execution. If, I, if, if, if this show, Cal and the rest of the team, like if, you know, Tatiana, you, like the execution could be a problem. But again, it was after six or seven public events where I watched you that I really didn't like the talent. If it delivers, you can always win on that front. So nothing surprised me. I've been, I mean, I've been, I've been enjoying how surprised people are that candor was a weakness of mine operationally, mm -hmm. because again, the public persona's strength is candor. I've enjoyed a lot of people emailing me on LinkedIn and email and DMs on Instagram, really acknowledging vulnerably that they're not as nice as they should be, that they pick the money over the human. Mm -hmm. And I think between my continued success with the NFT stuff and some of that stuff, the great resignation conversation and COVID reframing perspective for a lot of people, I think that the timing of the book and having this conversation, I mean, I, Jim, I genuinely believe that nice guys finish first. I, I genuinely do. I think you have to decide what finishing is. Right? right. Plenty of people right. that are not kind make money. Yeah. But, but, yeah. but, but are they like, do they love it when they're 72? And even if they look like they love it because they put a photo with their yacht, when you dig deep and you live worldly and you know a lot of people, there's an incredible loneliness that comes if you're not nice. You oh, know, yeah. there's, there's a, yep. there's a kicking you on the way down. You know, there's a lot of executives that are getting canceled and fired and, you know, the ones that weren't able to build real relationships have very little support. It's very lonely when you are coming off your pedestal and nobody's there for you, but you've made that bed. And I, and I, I, I think first for me is joy, satisfaction, community, um, admiration, what people say behind your back, how many people want to come to your funeral, how many people want to have dinner with you, you know, uh, that's actual winning, like making 600,000 a year versus 300,000 or making $10 million in your life earnings versus 400,000. Look, as long as you live within your means of your earnings, it's all the same. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the life KPIs that matter, right? Everything you're that's rattling right. off. That's Gary, right. I was talking to a few of your employees before this podcast and I asked them a simple question. What's Gary up to? <laughs> and, and, and by the way, here's what they quickly said positivity, empathy, and kindness. Three of the ingredients, by the way, in the book. And 
He has no tolerance for people or brands that do not live those values. So I'd like your reaction to that. And the follow-up will be, how do you run that through your organization? How do you run an organization where when I say to people, what's he up to? That comes right out, which is clearly what you are valuing. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you. How many people, how many different people did you ask? Several. That's amazing. Several. That makes me very happy. Thank you. That's a very flattering moment for me. Um, boy, we really have something here. I'm really in a great spot. I'm 46 years old. We, we are very much on the right side of history of where this is all going. Um, I'm, I'm in, you know, this will actually, I've never said this. This is going to make a ton of sense. So now that people understand that candor wasn't great for me, there's a yin to that yang. I was so non-confrontational, which is why I don't like candor. I can be very confront, as you know, mm-hmm. like in these public, I'm incredibly co- uh, uh, confrontational on stage because I'm just talking to the industry. I'm not talking to an executive from a holding company. I'm not talking to a professor that believes in something I don't believe in. Like I'm just talking in the whole. So it's very easy. I'm not hurting anyone's feelings, right? So, but there's a great yang to that. I wasn't great at confrontation to like tell somebody they stunk or have to fire somebody, but that also means that I hate confrontation and negativity in my company. So I was creating a framework that really demonized politics. Mm -hmm. You know, Jim, there is no reason for a boss to ever verbally undress someone in a meeting in front of other people. There is no justification. Now, I hope everybody is listening. I hope you know, I'm not a over coddling, like, I'm not a, I'm not a let's create entitlement at scale guy. I'm not a, you know, be delusional. I'm not a, I don't care if I win. It's like, I care about all those things. I want all those things, but I just don't think you have to get them by being indecent. And so I've been a dictator on this. I've been an HR driven CEO for 13 years in Vaynerland. And I have fired, demoted, um, exited the individuals who weren't the kindest. And I've had, I'm having my second significant conversation with a CMO telling them that we will not allow their company to treat our employees with this kind of verbal and email conversation that we're not looking to be coddled. We're not entitled, but the negative like the, the, some of this stuff is just unacceptable. Like we've lost civility and cordialness in our society and, um, and I'm willing to resign business. How did that CMO react when you had that discussion? And by the way, the first I, one was a CEO. The second one is coming yeah. up. How would they react? Incredibly well, because I don't fool around when I have that meeting. Incredibly well. Um, I think most CEOs and CMOs tend to deflect responsibility. I'm incredibly passionate in that moment to bring it back. I remind everybody at VaynerMedia that everything in the company is my fault. I've got things going on right now that I'm not proud of. I just am strategically working through them. Right. Yeah. You know, like, you know, but you know, I remind this C-suite individual that like, like it's your job to know if your people are doing that, if you're going to make pretend you don't know. And oh, by the way, everything stems from the top. A lot of the behavior I'm seeing on one account right now stems from the fact that they're scared of their CMO. You know, they are. 
They're scared of their CMO because she or he is a yeller and mm -hmm. makes subjective creative calls. And they're taking that out on our team. And I'm not going to stand for that. I'm really not. The money is just not interesting enough. You know how much money I make in NFT land, in investment land, in Gary Vee speaking in book land? Like, I'm not here for the pennies that is client services with procurement beating you up and all the that comes along in running an agency. I'm here to change the industry in perpetuity. I want Vayner's flag to be in the ground the way that Ogilvy and Leo Burnett and all the great kind of iconic ad institutions have come along and done. Like, I am here to leave a significant mark on advertising in Madison Avenue. And um, I'm not here for the, the PL, which is why we've always were dangerous. I knew we were gonna make a mark from day one because I got educated in the first year that I was in the business. I didn't know much about Adland. And I was like, wait a minute, all the companies are owned by publicly traded companies? Immediately, Jim, that was probably the trigger to why I knew it would work. Mm -hmm. Not because these, I mean, the amount of people I've met at Publicis or, you know, BBD, uh, WPP or Omnicom, wonderfully talented, wonderful people. It's that they can't do the right thing by their clients because they have to be fiscally responsible to their PL. And that's, yeah. that's what I knew would be the opportunity. So, you know, to me, I wanted to leave a mark on the industry. I knew we would always be independent. Um, I think Vayner's biggest legacy is going to be that a lot of, I know there's two 16-year-old girls right now who are destined to meet at Miami Ad School who are going to start their firm in seven years and will be affected by my content and they will decide to never sell their agency. And when there's a hundred great agencies that decide that, do you know how different the world would be if Drogo was still independent, mm -hmm. if 72 and Sunny was still independent, yep. if you, Leo, like, like if, yep. if, if we had a hundred independent companies like Vayner and Wyden yep. in the industry, you would get dramatically better work for the biggest brands in the world. Well, here's the story about Wyden. When I left P&G, I called about 60 people personally right when it was announced. And I asked Dan Wyden, who I had brought into P&G, and I think had built an amazing culture. Yes. I went out to see him personally before I left, and we spent some time together with he and his team. And I walked into his office and he looked kind of glum. Mm. I said, what's up? He goes, I just resigned one of our largest accounts. Mm. I said, how many people were on that account? And he said, you know, 60. Mm -hmm. And I said, why'd you do it? He said, it was bad for our culture. Mm. I get it. So that's, you know, I that's what him. you just talked about. I, There's I, nothing I, stronger I, you can do than make it, it, decisions like that. He, hearing that story and many others is why I always put Wyden on such a big pedestal. The humans behind it were nice people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's probably not an agency on earth that actually has a different philosophical creative point of view than VaynerMedia, than Wyden. But that's just strategy. Yeah, that's right. As soul, there isn't a place that I feel more kinship yeah. towards. They're global, yeah. right? They, they have a real North Star of actually having a good culture. Um, and, you know, I admire what they've done and I admire that they have been, stayed independent. Gary, I don't want to leave this CMO podcast without giving you a little time to share with CMOs what you would like them to hear right now and others in our podcast community. You talked about TikTok, but I'd like you to just end this podcast with a few pieces of, I don't know, wisdom, uh, urging, so much, passion. There's so, yeah, there's so much opportunity, Jim. I think, I think, I hope everybody can remember what they learned in COVID in the beginning where like CMOs, so here's one big one for CMOs and this is something very big. So at Vayner, 
Every ECD has to make a TikTok every day. I want them living in the dirt, mm-hmm. right? Of course, I know you can ideate. I mean, here's one that connects us and Widen and the other great creative shops. Jim, people are flabbergasted. We got a lot of new business coming in and people are flabbergasted that Vayner Media in New York has made the most Super Bowl spots in the last three years, right? So I know I have ECDs that can kill Mr. Peanut or make you cry for a Budweiser Super Bowl spot or things of that nature. But what I want them to do is never lose the pulse of the actual consumer. And for every CMO on here, like 40 year olds, 50 year olds are consuming TikTok at scale. The organic reach is so underpriced, the ad product underpriced. You know, don't lose your, like don't lose your touch is what I want to say to the CMOs. Like know what Spotify is doing, understand what TrueView is on YouTube. Snapchat is incredibly fascinating as a creative pillar and and the filters and the AR shopping. Like know know what's going on with OTT pre-roll, Amazon Fire Stick, Hulu. The, the, The laziness or the strategic politics, and those are two very opposite energies, of, a, of the far majority of the Fortune 5000 of being lazy and allowing internal MMMs and external reporting justify GRPs and impressions is so vulnerable right now because especially for the CPG uh, leaders listening, between Amazon and between Shopify and between TikTok and social media, like brands don't have the moats they used to. Proctor used to have a moat of retail and television. Now both retail and television have been disrupted where little orphan brands are taking market share and, and you've got talent. Haber, who used to be a dominant player at Colgate, he's consulting with an emerging DTC, you know, toothpaste brand. So the talent's there, like there's so much going on. So I just, you know, here's what I would say, unless you're planning on retiring in the next five years, which is amazing. And I hope you enjoy Florida or Puerto Rico or Arizona or LA or wherever you're going and have beautiful life, unless you plan on retiring in the next five years, please understand that you're getting tricked. And here's what I mean by trick, Jim. What's happening is a lot of the new stuff, they've been seeing it for the last 15 years. What most people aren't good at is understanding tipping points. And so I have empathy for the CMO that's like, oh, Gary, and this ran. I heard this five years ago. I heard this seven years ago. I heard this nine years ago. The problem is OTT is dominating consumption. Like there wasn't Netflix, there wasn't Hulu, there wasn't Amazon Prime. Like we are dangerously close. Every network, television and cable provider has shown you their cards with their roadmaps on what they're doing. They're all going OTT because they have no choice. They don't want to, they have no choice. And then, and then one other thing, be a practitioner in digital. So many of these brands, Jim, are getting tricked in garbage organic social content programmatic banners, inventory, they're all addicted for scale, Jim. You know, this was, your era was so built on that and made all the sense in the world. When Walmart's in its prime, when television network television's in its prime, it was brilliant. The problem is 2022 is totally different and scaling brands, we don't have actual consumptions. We're making assumptions not grounded in common sense around awareness. It's not being consumed and more importantly, even when it's being consumed, Super Bowl, best ad going. If you make a vanilla Frankenstein, it's not gonna hit anyway. And what a vanilla Frankenstein is, is the majority of creative work in our industry because it's vanilla, because if you're spending all your money on a brand positioning Anthem video and you push it down, well, you, you, if you're not making 100, 500 
4,000 more pieces of creative, that needs to do everything. So you're just making this, it's vanilla. All these brand positionings are a generic sentence. And then it's Frankenstein because between the agency strategist who wrote the brief, then their creative interpreted differently. Then the client added their two cents. Oh, then this is all I've learned in the last 13 years. Then you get a production company involved. Oh, you know what else happens, Jim? As you know, and everybody here knows better than me, then you hire a fancy director. So she or he is now deployed. By the time it's done, it's Frankenstein. And so now you have all these vanilla Frankensteins, AKA the commercials that, oh, by the way, the ad weeks, the PR weeks, the ad ages continue to put on a pedestal, yet no human being on earth is consuming it, knows anything that you're talking about. And meanwhile, a guy grabs a Fleetwood Mac song and a, you know, a bottle of ocean spray. And like, you have to understand, this is real. That is the single most commercially successful ad in ocean spray's history. We've got to recognize these truths. And this is not a game of it's coming. So I would say this, the best place to start for everybody listening is how strategic is your organic social media content engine, whether internal or external. I think a lot of brands have decided a really tough matrix of a mix of internal, which they never give them enough resources. It's hard to hold the talent. And then a mix of your creative AOR doing it. And if you really double click into that PL, you're spending too much money for the output in social because you're really just paying for the above the line stuff. So I, I think people have to have a call in arms internally as a creative agent, as a creative marketer, CMOs, they have to look at this. Here's why the consumer insights and the actual consumption. And when you create a lot of consumer segmentations and then make creative for it, the relevance opportunity is so extraordinary. And I know for a fact that 99% of the people listening to this podcast right now still view social media as this little side dish, maybe an amuse-bouche, a annoyance because it maybe sometimes has risk associated. And meanwhile, it is the absolute engine of brand building in our society in 2022. It just is. And when you do what we do, this is why we have so many Super Bowl spots. When you do that down there perfectly and you get the actual insights, the videos you make, we call them bridge videos because we want to bridge to Super Bowl or the commercials you make all over index because they came from an actual consumer lens, not from a boardroom where three humans made a subjective call. Yeah. And it's, it, it, it's a mandate for a different way of working too, which is a different Correct. podcast. You know, the and, organizations and the way, have to our, be set up our, very differently. Our creative department is a production department. We make, mm-hmm. we have all these procurement calls. They're like, wait a minute, Gary, we heard you guys were price effective. You guys are slightly more than this agency. I'm like, no, no, that agency is the agency fee. Look at their production fee too. You're getting everything in here because our creative department makes. So it's a whole different thing to your point, approving you know, we're trying to do 30, 40, 50 pieces of creative a week, an approval process for that. What is that? It's really guardrails. It's not even an approval process. You know, I mean, there's a lot of working that goes into it, but it is working. It is working fabulously. Everybody's going to do it in the next five years. And I'm excited for the industry to be more relevant to actual consumers. Cause I think we're getting out of a decade of not being relevant. Gary, I'm going to end this with some of the ingredients from your book. Thank you for your optimism. Thank you for your tenacity. Thank you for your kindness. And I will add one that isn't on here. Thank you for your friendship. Yeah, my man. Thank you so much. Hope everybody's well.